When our son Ben was about 13 years of age, we sent him to a Christian basketball camp. And one day, while attending the camp, Ben came home and announced that one of the visiting instructors, Jumpin' Joe Jackson, had given a sermon that day, and Ben said it was the greatest sermon he had ever heard. (laughs) Now keep in mind, Ben had heard me, his father and pastor, give hundreds of sermons, but he said that the sermon he heard that day from Jumpin' Joe Jackson was the greatest one he had ever heard. I questioned him on it. I said, the greatest? He affirmed it was the greatest. Well, needless to say, the wind was taken out of my sails that day, but Michelle encouraged me by assuring me that as Ben got older, he would appreciate my ministry, and she was right. But listen, my son isn't the only one who's ever felt that way about a certain sermon. Many of us have our favorite sermons too, from our favorite preachers. Sermons that have impacted our lives for Christ in profound ways. Sermons that we would consider turning points in our lives, defining moments in our lives. Well, this morning I want to introduce to you what is without question the greatest sermon ever preached by the greatest preacher who has ever lived. It's certainly not Jumpin' Joe. The sermon I'm referring to is the one given by the Lord Jesus Christ, known as the Sermon on the Mount. It's recorded both in Matthew's Gospel as well as Luke's Gospel, and it is the focus of our study this morning and will be for several weeks and perhaps even months as we continue working our way through the Gospel of Luke. But before looking at the sermon itself, I want us to first look at Luke's introductory comments, which set the scene for the sermon, set the context for the sermon. We find this in Luke chapter 6, verses 17 through 19. Luke says, Jesus came down with them and stood on a level place, and there was a large crowd of his disciples and a great throng of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the coastal region of Tyre and Sidon, who had come to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were being cured, and all the people were trying to touch him, for power was coming from him and healing them. Having just told us previously, having just told us that Jesus spent the entire night in prayer on a mountain in what we assume to be the Galilee area for the purpose of seeking the Father's will, seeking the Father's guidance, His direction as to which of His many disciples Jesus should choose to be His 12 apostles. Luke now tells us that Jesus, along with the 12 that He had chosen, descended down the mountain until He stood on a level plain or a level place from which He was about to deliver his sermon. Now, the fact that Luke says that Jesus gave this sermon on a level place or a level plane, I mean, while Matthew, in his much fuller account of the Sermon on the Mount, he says that Jesus delivered it on a mountain, or really it should be translated a hill, it really isn't a problem. It's not a contradiction at all, because the Greek word for plane can mean a level place on the side of a mountain. And that appears to be exactly what Luke means, that Jesus preached this sermon on a large, level tract of land on a sloping hill. 
And most scholars believe that this is a reference to a specific plateau in Israel located not far from the town of Capernaum on the western side of the Sea of Galilee. And so Jesus, having arrived at this level area on a hill with his newly chosen 12 apostles, Luke says that there were two groups of people who had gathered to him. One was a large group of our Lord's disciples, his followers, his believers. The other group, Luke says, were gathered there on the side of the hill. Who were they? Well, verse 17 tells us a great throng of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the coastal region of Tyre and Sidon. In other words, these people, in contrast to his followers, these were not followers of Christ, but they were individuals from areas outside of the Galilee area, from as far south as the region of Judea, including the city of Jerusalem, and from as far north as the coastal towns of Tyre and Sidon. So, if this great throng of people were not followers of Jesus, then why did they come from such a distance to be with him? Well, notice what Luke tells us as we look back again at verses 18 and 19. Who had come to hear him and to be healed of their diseases, and those who were troubled with unclean spirits were being cured, and all the people were trying to touch him, for power was coming from him and healing them. So Luke says here that these were people who were interested in hearing speak. Perhaps they had heard things about Jesus. No doubt they had heard things that Jesus had said as others told them about him, but they had never heard him themselves. So here they were, and they had come to hear the Lord speak. We're also told that they wanted the Lord to heal them of their diseases, And those who were not diseased but had demons possessing them, they wanted him to cast these demons out of them. And Luke tells us that he did because as people physically touched him, his supernatural power that was emanating from his body healed them. So, folks, that's the setting of the Sermon on the Mount. You have a crowd of both believers and unbelievers who have gathered to Jesus on a hill, some to hear him, some to be healed by him, with Jesus standing before them with the 12 apostles by his side. And then Matthew says in his parallel account of the Sermon on the Mount, he says in chapter 5 verse 1 that Jesus then sat down. Now why would Jesus sit down at a time like this? When he had a large crowd of people in front of him, they wanted to hear him speak. It just seems a little odd, a little strange to just sit down when this group of people have gathered coming from far distances to hear you. Why sit down? Well, it's really not strange when you understand that in the first century, in the first century, especially in the nation of Israel, speaking to a crowd was different than the way that we do it today. Because in our contemporary culture, when someone is about to teach, they normally stand up in front of an audience and they just start speaking. But in our Lord's day, just the opposite was the case. When a rabbi sat down with a crowd in front of him, it was a signal to the crowd, not only that he was about to speak, but also that he meant business in what he was about to say. This was not chit-chat. This was not small talk. Because what he was about to say was his official and formal teaching. In other words, sitting down meant that his words carried the weight of authoritative teaching. 
This is why we read, for example, in Matthew chapter 23, verse 2, that the teachers of the law and the Pharisees, they sit in the seat of Moses. You see, to sit in the seat of Moses meant that they had authority to formally and officially instruct the people in the Mosaic law, the law of God. Even today, we speak like this. We speak of a professor holding a chair in a university as a way of saying that this man or this woman is in an honored position to speak with authority on their particular subject. So with the 12 apostles closest to him and then his many disciples sitting as near to him as possible and the great throng of unbelievers making up the back rows on this sloping hill, Luke tells us in the opening words of verse 20, and turning his gaze towards his disciples, he began to say. Now this is significant because the fact that Luke tells us that Jesus deliberately looked towards his disciples and then began to speak reveals that the Sermon on the Mount was directed primarily at Christ's followers, believers in him, those who had come to accept him as their Messiah. This is who the sermon is primarily for. However, it'd be wrong to conclude by this that all of the sermon was directed towards his disciples. And I say that because Jesus, as you look further at these at the sermon, Jesus very clearly directed some of his words to unbelievers. There's no question about that. For example, if we look at verses 24 through 26, but woe to you who are rich, for you are receiving your comfort in full. Woe to you who are well fed now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all men speak well of you, for their fathers used to treat the false prophets in the same way. Now, here we have four woes that Jesus gives, and they are directed at the unbelievers in that crowd because they speak, these woes speak of the danger of God's coming judgment upon those who are not in a right relationship with the Lord. It's a woe of judgment. Also, at the end of the sermon, Jesus gives an evangelistic appeal. And he gives a warning to unbelievers in the form of a parable that he gives, specifically directed at those who had not yet decided to believe on him and to follow his teaching. It's the same thing as Matthew closes his version of the Sermon on the Mount, starting at verse 46. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not what I say? Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and acts on them, I'll show you whom he's like. He's like a man building a house who dug deep and laid a foundation on the rock. And when a flood occurred, the torrent burst against that house and could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who has heard and has not acted accordingly, he's like a man, this is directed to unbelievers now, he's like a man who built a house on the ground without any foundation and the torrent burst. The torrent is judgment. It burst against it and immediately it collapsed and the rain of that house was great. So, based on this, it appears obvious that the Sermon on the Mount is predominantly for followers of Christ, while a few parts are directed at unbelievers. Now, having said that, let me explain to you some important information about this sermon that'll help you to better understand it. First of all, while there are some very fine Bible teachers who believe that Matthew's version of the Sermon on the Mount and Luke's version of the Sermon on the Mount are two different sermons given on two different occasions. 
But the weight of evidence favors the view that they are the same sermon given at exactly the same time. And I say that because for one thing, they're both delivered on a hill. In addition, there are just too many similarities to reasonably allow for two different sermons. Also, both sermons are directed at the same exact people, primarily the disciples of Jesus, and then some parts aimed at unbelievers. And finally, the general direction, the the general train of thought is the same in both of these versions, Matthew's as well as Luke's. They both open with statements of those who are blessed, followed by truths about loving others, and they conclude with the same parable about the wise man and the foolish man who built their homes. So then the natural question for us then to ask is, if Matthew and Luke are both speaking about the same sermon, then why is Matthew's version so much longer than Luke's, including so many words of Jesus that Luke leaves out. I mean, Matthew's version of this is chapters 5, 6, and 7, three chapters, while Luke is only part of one chapter, chapter 6. So that's a valid question. Addressing this very question, Bible scholar William Hendrickson wrote these words. He said, it is admitted that the two reports are not identical. Matthew's coverage is more than three times as extensive as Luke's. This shows that the gospel writers were not mere copyists. Each wrote in accordance with his own background, character, and endowment. Perhaps even more important, each wrote in harmony with his own specific purpose. This is not surprising that Matthew includes various matters that were of special interest to his Jewish readers, whom he was trying to reach for Christ. Since Luke was not primarily writing for Jews, he omits such matters. On the other hand, Luke's account contains material not found in that identical form in Matthew or not included by him in this sermon at all. It's not only possible, but very probable that many of the sayings found in the Sermon on the Mount were repeated by the Lord as he traveled from place to place. I think he's absolutely right. And I would add to this that neither Matthew's nor Luke's versions of the Sermon on the Mount include all that Jesus said that day. Why do I say that? Because you can read the longer version, Matthew's version, in about 10 minutes. There's no way that Jesus, with all these people there, gave a 10-minute sermon. We would call that a sermonette. He didn't do that. He spoke a lot longer. So, folks, here's what it comes down to. Both Matthew and Luke, guided by the Holy Spirit, inspired by Him, guided by the Spirit of God, they selected statements from our Lord's sermon that fit their unique message for their unique gospel narratives about Jesus. And here's something else to keep in mind that may help to explain the differences in these two versions. John MacArthur in his commentary on Luke points out this, and I quote, he says, there are minor variations in Matthew's and Luke's accounts, but those are to be expected in the process of translating and condensing Jesus' message because the Lord spoke in Aramaic and Matthew and Luke wrote in Greek. So, I hope that's very helpful to you. Now, as far as understanding the content of the sermon, here are a few things that you should be aware of. First of all, it's important to realize that as its name indicates, it is a sermon. 
It is a sermon. It's not an accumulation of various disconnected statements from the teaching ministry of Jesus. Though nowhere does Jesus or Matthew or Luke ever directly call this a sermon, it is. It was the North African theologian Augustine who first called it a sermon in the 5th century, and he was right. It's important to know that it's a sermon and why it's a sermon. The reason it's important to know this is because every sermon, unlike random spiritual thoughts thrown together, has structure and form. Now, it may not always be obvious to you, but by definition, a sermon has some orderly arrangement of its material. It has a central theme. Then there are several points that develop that theme. It also has instruction, it has application, it has exhortation to respond to God's truth. Now, the primary theme of Christ's Sermon on the Mount, around which the entire message is centered and it's then developed as this. It's about kingdom living. As Jesus teaches his followers how to live as his disciples, as citizens of his kingdom in the midst of a fallen, sinful world. A hostile world. See, the primary audience, since the primary audience that Jesus targeted that day was his disciples, those who had already repented, those who had already accepted him, believed on him as their Messiah, they now needed instruction from him as to how to live under Messiah's rule in his kingdom. So then what Jesus is teaching them in the Sermon on the Mount about kingdom living is this, that there is a lifestyle of kingdom living that is counterculture to the world that we live in. He commands us to take seriously our commitment to Him, to live as His disciples, and therefore to have a value system and a lifestyle that's in line with His kingdom and not our society, not our world. And essentially what that means is that we are to live by the righteous principles that our king lays down in the sermon rather than by the standards of the world. In other words, the reason his disciples are to be different than those around them is because his disciples have already, note this, they've already entered his kingdom. And therefore, they need to live according to kingdom principles. To put it succinctly then, the Sermon on the Mount is a message about kingdom living right now, today, at this present time. In a sinful world that's hostile to Christ, hostile to his followers, and only getting worse. Now, I want to emphasize this. I want to emphasize the fact that Christ's sermon is about kingdom living now. Because contrary to what some Christians have been taught, the Sermon on the Mount isn't for Jewish people who will be living in a future messianic kingdom age. A number of years ago, I visited a woman in our church, and she told me that she had stopped attending our Thursday morning ladies' Bible study because they were teaching the Sermon on the Mount, she said, as if it was directed to us today in the church age. And she felt that that was just completely wrong. And she felt this way, folks, because she had been taught by certain popular Bible teachers at that time that the Sermon on the Mount was Christ's teaching about principles that would be in effect for Israel and the Jewish people only during the millennial kingdom, that is the 1,000-year physical reign of Christ on earth. Now, this was the view 
of some well-known Bible teachers several generations ago. This was certainly the view of a man by the name of C.I. Schofield, who wrote the original Schofield Study Bible. They updated it, and you have these new notes there that don't state this, but in the original Study Bible put out by Schofield, he did believe that. It was a popular view held by a number of prominent Bible teachers, as I said, a few generations ago, and and some even in our day and age. See, in their zeal to keep God's plan for Israel and the church distinct, these Bible teachers tended to go overboard in making some artificial distinctions about Israel and the church, and that's precisely what they did by teaching that the Sermon on the Mount was not for church-age believers, but for the Jewish people in a coming future age. The Bible certainly teaches that Christ will establish a physical kingdom on earth in the future after Israel repents and accepts him at the end of the tribulation period. But to say that the Sermon on the Mount is reserved solely for Jewish believers of a future age, I think is just absolutely wrong. It fails to take into account that there is a spiritual aspect of Christ's kingdom that exists presently today in the lives of his followers. Notice what the Apostle Paul wrote in Colossians chapter 1, verse 13. He said, for he, meaning Jesus, rescued us from the domain of darkness. And notice this, he transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. So it would be God the Father who rescued us from the domain of darkness, transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. The kingdom of his beloved son, we've been transferred to right now. You're in that spiritual aspect of his kingdom if you're a true believer. So there is a present day aspect of Christ's kingdom as he reigns and rules over the hearts of those who know him as their Savior and Lord. But in addition to this, I want you to see for yourselves that there are some significant reasons for rejecting the interpretation that sees the Sermon on the Mount as instruction only for a future millennial age. For one thing, the most obvious reason for rejecting this view is that there's nothing in this sermon that indicates or even implies that Christ's teaching was for followers of a future age. The text just doesn't say that. What it does tell us is that Jesus addressed his teaching about righteous living to those disciples who were with him, listening to him right then and there in the first century, not in the millennial kingdom. He demanded the people who were there that day that they obey him then and there. Not think about some distant kingdom. Not think about their descendants many generations removed. No, them. Secondly, many of the conditions mentioned in the sermon won't be a reality during the millennial kingdom. For example, there won't be any persecution of believers during the thousand-year reign of Christ on earth, yet Jesus speaks about persecution in this sermon. I won't take the time to read it, but in chapter 6, verses 22 and 23, speaks about persecution, how to handle it. That can't be for the kingdom age. There won't be that persecution going on then. Also, false teachers won't be around during the kingdom age. Yet Jesus was referring to false teachers in his sermon when he said the words, and once again, you can read it on your own, chapter 6, starting at verse 39, going to verse 45. It's all about, it's all about false teachers. 
So to view the Sermon on the Mount as only for a future kingdom age really makes much of the content of this sermon quite meaningless. Very meaningless. Third reason for rejecting the future millennial view of this sermon is that every single principle, and I mean every single principle taught by Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount is also found in the New Testament letters addressed to Christians, church-age believers, in this time period, which means that the truths found in the Sermon on the Mount are intended for his followers in every generation. So folks, the Sermon on the Mount is a message for you. It's a message for me, for us, because it tells us how to live as disciples, as citizens of Christ's kingdom in a fallen, sinful world, not a utopian age. And now that you understand the central point and message of this sermon, I want to show you the big picture of how Jesus develops this theme. The Sermon on the Mount has three main points that all relate to the overall theme of kingdom living. The first point or first part of the sermon is about certain characteristics or marks of those who are in the kingdom and certain characteristics or marks of those who are not in the kingdom. That is to say that Jesus declares what a true disciple is like in terms of his character and what a non-disciple, an unbeliever is like in terms of his or her character. Second part of the sermon, which really makes up the majority of the sermon, is about how citizens of Christ's kingdom are to love their enemies, those who hate them, those who persecute them, how we are to respond in love, which is counterculture to the world that we live in. Completely different. It is radical teaching. It is a radical departure from what you will hear from others who don't know the Word of God. And the third and final point of our Lord's sermon is His challenge to unbelievers in the audience to turn away from false teachers to follow Him and His teaching, to build their lives upon His words. So, with this as our background, we're ready to begin to study the Sermon on the Mount. Now, as I said, it's going to take several weeks, if not months, to go through our Lord's sermon, but why are we in a hurry? You're never going to finish the Bible with me anyway. So, we're just going to study it and take as long as we want to cover this. Today's message is going to focus on how it begins. It begins by Jesus directly addressing his followers by telling them that there are four characteristics of those who are in his kingdom, meaning those, as I said, who are his disciples. We're going to look at only the first characteristic, but Jesus goes on to give several more. And he does this by giving a series of statements in which he says that those who are like this are blessed or blessed. And so starting with verse 20, we read, blessed are you who are poor for yours is the kingdom of God. Now, the very first word of the Sermon on the Mount is the word blessed, and it's one that Jesus will go on to repeat several more times to describe the characteristics of his disciples. So what did Jesus mean by this word blessed? It's rather important that we nail this down. Well, there is a popular view that says that the Greek word that's translated in our Bibles as blessed should be translated could be, should be, would make it easier if it was just translated as happy. And those who translate it this way would interpret these statements of Jesus as God's formula for how to be a happy person. 
But to understand blessed as the same thing as happiness is to completely miss the point that Jesus was saying. See, happiness is a subjective and it's an emotional state of being based upon how we feel at that moment. But in calling citizens of his kingdom blessed, Jesus wasn't stating how they felt. He was declaring a fact about them. He was declaring what God says about them, what they are in God's eyes. You see, you can feel lousy and still be blessed by God. You can have negative feelings or no feelings at all and still be blessed of God in the sense that Jesus is using this word. So what exactly then does Jesus mean by the word blessed? Well, it's really a word of approval. In fact, you could translate it that way, approval, God's approval. When Jesus states that the person who possesses these character qualities is blessed, he is simply making an assessment of them, and that assessment of them is that they are approved. Approved by who? Approved by God. In other words, Jesus is telling us that God's assessment of these people is approval because he's in a right relationship with them because they have believed on him, on Christ, for their salvation. Let me put it as plainly as possible. To be blessed by God is to have his approving smile upon you. And the reason you have his approving smile is because he smiles upon his perfect son. And since you are a follower of his son, he smiles upon you. And that's why we read in the Old Testament that those who are in a right relationship with God, they are called blessed or blessed. For example, Psalm 1 Verse 1, how blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. This is a saved man. He doesn't listen to the wicked. He listens to the word of God. That's his delight. Psalm 32, verse 1, how blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. This is a believer. This is someone who has believed and the Lord has forgiven his sin. In the New Testament, we see the word blessed used in a similar way. Speaking of Mary. Luke chapter 1, 46 through 48, Mary said, My soul exalts the Lord, and my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior, for he has had regard for the humble state of his bondslave. For behold, from this time on, all generations will count me as blessed. Mary's saying that she's found favor with God. He's her Savior. He approves of her. He has regard for the humble state of his bondslave. He has smiled upon her so that she has been blessed and all generations from this point on will know that. Now, friends, this concept of being blessed as God's approval is very significant. In fact, it's really the most important thing in life. It's a good reminder that there is nothing more important than having God's approval in your life, not the approval of family or friends, or work associates, or fellow students. In fact, if you live to get the approval of others, then you will not have God's approval because His approval comes by being in a right relationship with Him, which you evidence by loving and obeying His Word, and that often brings the disapproval of others and even outright persecution. So, for God to approve of you means that you have trusted Christ as your Lord and Savior, and that is so significant. You shouldn't care what anybody else thinks. You've trusted Him. 
Now, Jesus says that the person who is in a right relationship with him, the one who's been blessed with his approval, has certain qualities about them that characterize their life. And this is presented in absolute sense. It's not like they could be like this, but maybe not. No, they are like this. These are marks of believers. And the first character quality of those who have been blessed, in this context, those who have been saved, is that they're poor. The text says, gazing at his disciples, Jesus said to them, blessed are you who are poor. Now, we have to be careful how we interpret these words, because if we're not careful, then we're going to think that Jesus is teaching that being financially poor is a blessing and that God has blessed such people with poverty, financial poverty. But that's not at all what the Lord is saying, because the Bible does not teach that poverty in and of itself is a blessing. In fact, in Proverbs chapter 30, verses 8 and 9, the inspired penman Ask the Lord to keep him from poverty. He doesn't want poverty so that he won't be tempted to steal and as a result profane God's name. So if Jesus is not saying that those who are blessed by God are those who are economically poor, the question is what is he saying? Well, in Matthew's larger version of the Sermon on the Mount, we have the answer. Because Matthew records Jesus as saying, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now notice carefully how Jesus worded this. He didn't say, blessed are those who are poor spirited. Didn't say that in the sense of being shy or weak or lacking in courage or having a poor self image. Jesus didn't say, blessed are the wimps of this world. He didn't say that. He wasn't promoting passivity or a lack of aggressiveness or denouncing assertiveness, not at all. Many of the Bible's great characters were bold and they were aggressive, assertive, men with tremendous zeal, men like Moses and David and Paul and Peter. So if being poor in spirit has nothing to do with being financially poor or having a shy and retiring personality, then what does it mean? Well, the key to understanding the type of poverty that Jesus was referring to is to see that when he says poor in spirit, that he's talking about, note this, spiritual poverty. You see, Jesus wasn't talking about the condition of somebody's checkbook or their bank account, but the condition of their spirit, of their heart. In other words, Jesus was referring to a poverty within our souls, a spiritual poverty that recognizes that we have absolutely no resources within us to merit God's favor. And we know that's exactly what he was talking about because the specific Greek word that's used here for poor means not just being on the poor side with a little bit of little money, some resources, no. The word means complete destitution without any Resources, we would say today, dirt poor. This was the same word used for someone who begged because they had absolutely nothing. In fact, this particular New Testament Greek word comes from a verb meaning to shrink or to cower or to cringe because so often that was the posture of someone who begged for money. In classical Greek literature, the same word was used to refer to a person who was completely destitute, who crouched in a corner begging 
while he held out one hand for some charity, often hid his face with his other hand because he was just too ashamed of being recognized. That's the word. So when Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, he means blessed are the spiritual beggars. Blessed are those who are spiritually bankrupt. Those who are so desperately poor in their spiritual resources that they know that they have absolutely nothing to commend themselves before God. So then, what does being poor in spirit have to do with being a citizen of God's kingdom? Listen closely because this is critically important. Everyone who is a citizen, without any, any exceptions, everyone who's a citizen of God's kingdom, meaning everyone who's a true Christian, enters his kingdom by first shamefully acknowledging that they are unworthy sinners, that they are spiritually bankrupt, that they have absolutely nothing in themselves that would commend them to God, that they are deserving only of His eternal wrath and judgment. Here's how Martin Lloyd-Jones, longtime pastor in London, described what it means to be poor in spirit. He said it means a complete absence of pride, a complete absence of self-assurance and of self-reliance. It means a consciousness that we are nothing in the presence of God. It is nothing then that we can produce. It is nothing that we can do in ourselves. It's just this tremendous awareness of our utter nothingness as we come face to face with God. I ask, is this true of you? You who are here today, you who are watching on live stream, is it true of you? Do you have this awareness in your soul that you are spiritually bankrupt? That you have nothing to commend yourself to God? That you are only deserving of His eternal wrath? If that's not your attitude, if you think there's some righteousness in you, or you've accomplished something, or you're not too bad, you're not as bad as this other person, then you are not a true Christian. You have never entered the kingdom of God. You see, no one is saved merely because they prayed some words. They asked Jesus to come into their life and be their savior. Those are empty words if they are not accompanied by a poor in spirit attitude that recognizes your lost and sinful condition before a holy God who condemns all sin and declares you unworthy of heaven. Likewise, if you don't have that attitude now, we enter the kingdom that way, we still have that attitude. Paul said, there's nothing good in my flesh. Nothing. He said that years later. I am the chief of sinners. If you have that attitude that, yes, I prayed these words, I, I must be a believer, but you never take responsibility for your sin. It's never your fault. It's always somebody else's fault. And if you behave a bad way, it's because they pushed you in that direction. If that's your lifestyle, and you don't see yourself as a sinner, and as someone who is a wretched sinner before God, then you are not in His kingdom, regardless, regardless of how many times you've prayed the sinner's prayer. And Jesus told a parable that illustrates and helps us to clarify what it means to be poor in spirit. I read this to you earlier, so let me comment on it. You have this Pharisee who goes up to the temple He's not poor in spirit. He's just the opposite. He's proud in spirit. While this tax collector, he's poor in spirit. The Pharisee proudly parades his virtues before God. But the tax collector couldn't even look at God. He's so overwhelmed with his own moral bankruptcy and spiritual destitution that all he could do 
is ask God for mercy. God, be merciful to me. And I want you to notice, he calls himself, at the end of verse 13, not a sinner. He doesn't say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. He says, God, be merciful to me. He puts a definite article there, the sinner. In other words, he didn't think of himself as just another sinner, but as the most wretched of all sinners. The sinner. That's how every one of us in the kingdom should look at ourselves because that's how we really are. And folks, that's exactly how one who is poor in spirit does feel before God. He is so aware of his utter depravity that he thinks of himself as the most sinful person on the planet. John Wesley, founder of the Methodist Church, he captured this attitude which when he described the poor in spirit with these words, he said, he has a deep sense of the loathsome leprosy of sin which he brought with him from his mother's womb, which overspreads his whole soul and totally corrupts every power and the faculty thereof. Listen, this is the attitude of everyone who is in the kingdom of God. If this is not your attitude, you're not in the kingdom of God. Because without this attitude, this acknowledgement of your spiritual bankruptcy, you cannot be in God's kingdom. And that's why Jesus concludes this opening statement about the poor in spirit by saying, for theirs, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You see, what our Lord is saying isn't simply that those who are poor in spirit, they've entered God's kingdom. No, it goes beyond that. He's saying that those who are poor in spirit watch this, are the only ones who have entered God's kingdom. The only ones. You can't enter it without this poor in spirit attitude. This is why only the poor in spirit can enter his kingdom. Because the way into God's kingdom is only through an acknowledgement that you have no right to be there. If you think you belong, you're not there. You have no righteousness in you. You are spiritually destitute As someone has wisely written, the door into his kingdom is low and no one who stands tall will ever go through it. You can see this so clearly in the life of the Apostle Paul. Paul wrote a bit of his autobiography in Philippians chapter 3, starting at verse 4. He said, although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh, if anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness which is in the law found blameless. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish, so that I may gain Christ and may be found in him not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. Now Paul acknowledges here that prior to his conversion, he was a self-righteous religious leader who thought of himself as an accomplished man, a man who was rich in religious deeds, rich in achievements, but he came to see his own righteousness, his own religious accomplishments for what they really were. In verse 8, he calls all of them rubbish. That's a nice way of putting it because the Greek word rubbish either refers to human excrement or garbage from a meal. The translators were nice in how they translated this. 
In either case, it accurately reveals how spiritually bankrupt Paul was. That the best he had to offer God was manure and trash. That's what he's saying. And Paul never forgot, as I said, he never forgot how spiritually destitute he was. Even as a mature believer in Christ, years later, as a Christian leader, he says in Romans 7.18 that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. He'll say in 1 Timothy 1.15 that he was the chief of sinners. And, and that's why I say, folks, that it isn't just that you entered this way. This is your attitude now. So if, if you're always excusing your sin and you're never wrong and it's not your fault, don't deceive yourself. You're not a believer. Believers shamefully acknowledge their sin. They don't make excuses. They don't justify themselves. Folks, every one of us comes into the kingdom the same way. We bow low in humility before a holy but merciful God. And we admit that we have nothing to boast about before Him. We are spiritually bankrupt. We are penniless. And practically speaking, you know what this means? It means that our pride has to be dealt with. That all the things about ourselves that we once boasted about, such as our family heritage, maybe our nationality, our ethnic background, our education, our career accomplishments, our self-discipline, our moral responsibility, our religious contributions, our wealth, our natural temperaments, our positions in life, the achievements of our children, perhaps even grandchildren, these things mean nothing to God. Nothing. To be poor in spirit means that you stand before Him empty-handed. It's the only way to enter His kingdom. Those who try to enter the kingdom of God by contributing to their salvation, they are turned away. They're like the people who Jesus said, they'll say to me, Lord, Lord, I did this, I did that. And He'll say, depart from me. I never knew you, you workers of iniquity. This is why being poor in spirit, this is why it's the very first character quality that Jesus mentions in this sermon because it is the foundation for all the other character qualities since it really addresses the very first step a person must take in becoming a Christian. Jesus said this, he said, unless you become like children, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself as a child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So to enter God's kingdom, you must come like a humble little child admitting how helpless you are and how unworthy you are. As long as one continues to cling to the hope that by their own efforts they can enter God's kingdom, they won't. Let me put it this way. Until you stop being a braggart and become a beggar, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. This is why those who become Christians must first be stripped of their pride. And sometimes that's a very painful process as God shows us the truth about ourselves. We first have to see ourselves as vile, guilty, godless wretches who deserve only eternal torment for our sins before we will turn to Christ and trust Him for the riches of His salvation. I know this sounds harsh. I know it sounds hard. But this is necessary. This is the truth. This is necessary if you are to be saved. You first have to be crushed by God and shown the truth about yourself before you'll ever see your need for Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. So, how about you? Have you come to the point in your life where you are ready to acknowledge your moral bankruptcy 
before God? Are you willing to enter the door of Christ's kingdom by bowing low and admitting to God that you have nothing to offer Him? As that great hymn, Rock of Ages, says, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Because it was on the cross that Jesus died for sinners like us. You come to the cross, you repent of your sin, you turn to Christ and you trust Him for your salvation, acknowledging that you don't deserve heaven because you are poor in spirit. That's the attitude of your heart. You're ready to do that. I would invite you to come up after we close the service and talk to me. I'm going to ask some of our elders, our pastors to come up too and be here at the front. And you just speak to me and I'll put you in touch with them and they will explain to you the way into the kingdom. Now, if you're already a believer, so that you are already poor in spirit, then recognize that you didn't do this on your own. This is the work of God in you. This is the grace of God. Nobody was born into this world humble. We're all born proud, thinking that we're better than we really are. God has to show us our sin. He reveals to us His holiness. He crushes us so that we humble ourselves before Christ and trust Him as Lord and Savior. So give Him the praise. Thank Him for His work of grace in your life. Let's pray. Father, we do thank You for this marvelous sermon that we are about to study. Lord Jesus, we thank You for Your brilliance. We thank You for the wisdom, the divine wisdom You had and still have, of course. And we pray that as we delve into the sermon that it will be life-changing for our church, life-changing for individuals life-changing for me. I pray that this would be a study that would just transform us. Thank you for those you've already saved. May they be very much aware of your grace in their lives, that they are poor in spirit and you've shown them this and they acknowledge it because you have taken the blinders off and you have worked in them. You've made them new creatures in Christ. For those who are still outside the kingdom, they hear the word every Sunday, perhaps even in Christian schools, in their homes, in Sunday school, and yet they're still, they're still holding on to whatever they hold on to, and they've never let go. They've never come to trust you. They've never seen themselves as wretched sinners. Lord, all we can do is ask that the Spirit of God would reveal the truth to them. And that he would point them to Jesus Christ as the only hope that they would have. And Lord, I pray for those who have made a profession, but there's no evidence in their lives. I pray that you would help them to not live under that deception, but they would be concerned about their soul, concerned enough to come to you and to truly repent and to truly enter into the kingdom, acknowledging their poverty. All of this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.